All the glory and praise. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 this morning as we continue our uh, incredible journey uh, looking at the, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, hopefully uh, you are reading, uh, I hope that you're reading along with us. Uh, I think there's a, a couple of the reading plans still in the back. If you have not been doing that, we would encourage you to. It's been uh, an incredible blessing to be able to read those things together and have discussions along in the week and uh, to be able to uh, per- be uh, prepared in a different way for service as uh, we, we see these things. This morning, though, we, we kind of take a turn a little bit uh, in the sense that uh, this week we read about the triumphal entry, um, and uh, or Palm Sunday as we kind of refer to it sometimes, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem to much fanfare and much celebration, and the Gospels really begin to get more detailed at this point. For the last eight months, we've looked at the, kind of the first 33 years of Jesus' life, uh, predominantly in three years of his ministry, and for the next two months, we're going to look at one week. Um, as uh, the Bible begins to, to add more detail as Jesus' ministry kind of comes to a culmination at the cross and the resurrection. And so we, I look forward to that over the next, uh, next few weeks as we look at those, that time period in closer detail uh, as we uh, look at the record of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as they describe that as well. And certainly this morning as part of that, uh, as we join Jesus and his disciples the day after the triumphal entry, and so hopefully by now you found Mark. So if you would please, if you are able, uh, stand with us as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. In Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 12, it says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw fig tree withered the, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we come to a passage that is hard. We come to a passage that 
presents you in a light that we don't often think about you in. Lord, as we see your anger, as we see your righteous anger, Lord, at sin and at hypocrisy, and Lord, we are taken aback by it. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at this passage, that you would uh, speak your truth into our hearts. Lord, that you would speak a word of encouragement, but also a great word of warning to us as individuals and as a church. Father, that we would know your righteousness and your grace this morning. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We get to we get to this passage, and as I said earlier, we join Jesus and his disciples on the day after, on Monday morning, the day after what we often call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Jesus has entered into much fanfare as people have been praising him and uh, just uh, going crazy because Jesus has come to Jerusalem and he visits the temple for just a brief moment uh, that evening and then he returns to Bethany where he is staying uh, most of this last Passion Week. Uh, He stays in the little town of Bethany which is not far out of Jerusalem and he's traveling back and forth and we find him on Monday morning and he is him and the disciples are traveling back to Jerusalem and he is hungry. Which, by the way, I'm not going to spend a lot, but a little side note, a reminder that while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man in that mystical union where you can have 200% of something in one thing, 100% man, 100% God, all joined together in this great mystery. But he's hungry. He needs something to eat. And so he looks in the distance and it says that he sees a fig tree. And it has leaves. The little bit that I have learned about fig trees in the last two weeks, one of the things that I know is that if you see a fig tree with leaves, it should have some sort of fruit on it. Now, it may not have full figs on it, and Mark tells us it wasn't the season for that. It wasn't quite the season for what we think of as a full ripe fig. But when a tree, when a fig tree has leaves on it, it should have these little green figs on it that are not as good, they're not as sweet as a regular fig, but they are a fruit and they are edible. So when Jesus looks in the distance and he sees these leaves on this tree and it's fully formed out, there is an expectation that there is something edible on that tree. And so he walks up to this tree and he he sees that there is nothing on it. That it is, it has in a sense lied. Not that a tree can lie, but it in a sense has lied. It has said that it is one thing. It has said that it is healthy. It has said that it is fruitful. And yet its appearance is not what it is in reality. And so Jesus curses this tree. Now he does so Not because he's angry, but he does so because all of this has been planned beforehand. All of this has been planned beforehand. This is an object lesson that in the sovereignty of God, and it's an object lesson that he's going to use to help them understand what's going to happen later in the day. 
Later in the day, he's going to go into the temple and clean it out. But it all starts with this lesson. And I want us to think for just a moment that in the sovereignty of God, he put a tree, a fruit tree, with no fruit on it in the path of the disciples. Like, that, that for a moment should just blow our mind just then and there. That the God of all the universe, so that he may make a visual point to us and to these disciples, he puts this tree that should have fruit on it, he puts it, but does not, he puts it in their way. And so he calls curse upon this fig tree. So what is the object lesson that we're to learn? What are, what are we supposed to gather from this? Well, one thing that we need to understand is that the fig tree was often used as a symbol of Israel. You can see this in Jeremiah 8, 13, Hosea 9, verse 10, and 16, Joel 1, 7, and all these different places throughout uh, the prophets. You see consistently God refer to Israel as a fig tree that stands before Him. And so... Here, the fig tree stands for Israel as well. It, this Israel that appeared to worship God. This Israel that appeared to have it all together. That they appeared to be robed in His righteousness. And yet, they had no fruits. There was nothing in them that actually spoke of their faith and so as Jesus calls curse upon them he is helping the disciples to understand that there is a time coming that the Jewish nation at least for a period was going to lose their effectiveness before the Lord they were going to lose their status as the gateway to worship and there would come into now a time period when it would be actually the Gentiles who worshiped God in truth and in spirit and we see Him take away kind of the lampstand of His Spirit, so to speak. And we see the culmination of that in A.D. 70 when the temple is destroyed. But it's a, it's a warning. This is what's going to happen. This is, this is Jesus saying, this is when you choose to, be, to act like you're faithful, but you are not actually faithful and you're hypocritical in your faith, that's not going to last forever. I'm not going to allow it to go on forever. And so he has this lesson before them. We see it play out in the real thing, though, as he goes into town. It says in verse 15, it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So you have Jesus entering into Jerusalem and there's the appearance of worship. This is Passover week. There's a lot of preparation going on. There is a lot of stuff happening in Jerusalem as the whole nation of Israel prepares for the holiest holiday in all of their, their calendar year. It's like when all of the preparation that we do for Christmas, and I'm not saying there's a connection between Christmas and Passover, don't get that confused, but just as Christmas approaches, we begin to prepare, we begin to decorate, we begin to gather ideas for what we're going to do as a family, we begin to buy gifts, we begin to do all these things, and we, there's just a lot that goes into that season. 
In the same way, the week before Passover, there was a lot that went into that season as they prepared for the Passover meal, as they prepared for family to be gathered together, as they prepared all of their hearts for what was happening. And much of it centered around what was going on at the temple as people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate there. And some of the things that they would have been doing was coming and preparing their hearts and offering sacrifice for their sins that they may be in right standing with Him as they entered into the Passover season. That they may offer the blood of an animal so that it might atone for their sins. But there was... Uh, something that there was a problem there in a way that many of them were pilgrims many of them were not agricultural and so they didn't have a lamb to sacrifice they didn't have an ox to sacrifice they didn't have a pigeon to sacrifice and so they would come into the temple and they would buy the animal there They would buy the animal there, and it had to be unblemished, so this animal had already been inspected, this animal had already been approved, and so they would buy the animal there, and then they would take it to the altar, and they would sacrifice it there. There was much appearance of worship in this place, and yet, there was veiled oppression. Veiled oppression. The appearance of worship, but... In reality, when you took back the veil and you began to look at what was happening, it was oppression. Rather than, <clears throat> rather than the priest and rather than these uh, men that were selling these animals, rather than being a gateway into worship, they were an obstacle into worship. So what they were doing was kind of twofold. You have the money changers there, so the only money that was accepted was the temple coin. And so if you were an outsider, you would come and you would exchange money, much in the same way that if we travel to another country, we have to exchange money as well so that we can buy things. And they were charging exorbitant rates to exchange money. You were losing hand over fist if you were trading money with these people. They were making an extraordinary amount of profit on that end. So you would exchange your money and then you would take the little bit of money that you got back and you would try to go buy an animal and the animals were extraordinarily overpriced as well. And so it was kind of like when you go to a, a ball game or you go to a concert and you get thirsty and you know it's hot and it's, it, you want to go and then you realize a soda like this big is like 10 bucks. You're like, good night. And you get hungry and you go buy the smallest hot dog you've ever seen, but you spend 15 for it. And it's like, what do I do? I mean, you have no choice. That's what there is. In the same way, these people come and they're told these are the only animals that are approved for sacrifice. This is the only way you can atone for your sins. But by golly, it's 10 times more than what you would pay out there. What are you going to do? You're you're trying to atone for sins. You're trying to approach God. You're going to pay what you need to pay. But it wasn't just that they were making profit, but they were oppressing the poor. I want to point out here something that's interesting. It says that he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Why does Mark point out that it's the money changers and the pigeon sellers? Why doesn't he mention anybody else? 
But we get a, a glimpse in that in Leviticus 5.7 where it says if you're not able to afford an animal, if you're not able to afford a lamb or an ox, in other words, if you are the poorest of poor, then it is acceptable for you to offer a pigeon or a dove. This is how we know, by the way, that Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were not well off. That when they go to make sacrifice for having a firstborn son of Jesus, they offer pigeons. And we know by that, that they didn't, they were not well off. And so what was happening was not were they not just making profit, but they were oppressing those that were poor. They were driving up the price of that which was supposed to make God approachable. You don't have this, so I'm making another way for you to come and to atone for sins through the offering of pigeons, which were nothing. Like, they were supposed to be worth nothing, and yet they were making great profit. And so they were st- not only was there an appearance of worship, That was empty. But they were standing in the way of others approaching God. And Jesus can't take it. Jesus begins to drive them out. He begins to overturn tables. He begins to overturn chairs. He begins to drive them out. He won't let them take shortcuts when they're talking there about he won't let anyone pass through and care anything. The idea was that they would have something that needed to go from one side of the temple to the other and they were cutting through the holy, of ho- the, the holy places of the temple, the, outer, the inner courtyards. And he was like, no, you go around. You go around this. You don't go through this. And so he begins to chase them out with righteous anger at what they are doing as they are no longer as he says no longer are you a place where the nations come and worship now you are a a den of robbers that have put up obstacles for the nations to come we need to understand this morning the great anger of god The righteous anger of God towards sin, especially when it is for among those who are supposed to be the ambassadors of Christ. The righteous anger of God at the hypocrisy of those who are supposed to be pointing the way to Christ and instead have become stumbling blocks for others. Who have instead put up obstacles that others may not come to Him. At the same time, and this is not in your notes, but at the same time, I want us to see the grace of God here. Yes, He has righteous anger, justified anger at those that stand and are are oppressing the poor, that those that are making obstacles towards coming towards God. But I also want you to see the grace. When you look at the Old Testament, And you look at those who worship in an unrighteous manner before God. What's the usual outcome? It ain't good. I'm just going to give you a warning. You have some guys, uh, some priests that come and they want to offer incense in an unworthy manner. And what happens? Poof! Fire. Consumed. Done. You have... uh, some sons, their, their dad is the high priest in Samuel. Their dad is the high priest, and these sons are corrupt. They're making a mockery of, of the altar and of sacrifice. And what happens? They go out, and they are slaughtered in a battle. When they should have been the farthest ones away from the fight, the fight finds them. 
You see a little bit later in David, they're carrying the ark, the, the most holy of, of things, and they're carrying it in an unworthy manner, and the ark begins to slip off the cart that it's on, and a guy reaches out, and is, in his, I love what R.C. Sproul says, it says, in his pride, he thought that his hands, his sinful hands, were cleaner than the earth, and he reaches and he grabs hold of the ark, and boom, he's dead. When you come before a holy, righteous God, we fear. <laughs> These men were in the midst of the temple of the holy, righteous God, and he would have been justified in sending fire down to consume them. And instead, he sends Christ to push them out of the way. That is grace. It doesn't look like it at first. We wouldn't conceive of it as grace at first. But sometimes God's grace is in the appearance of discipline and pushing you out of the temple so that he doesn't consume you in it. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. That there is great grace in God's discipline. That there is great grace in God's righteous anger. That there is great grace in being driven out of His presence for a moment. If we will repent and come back. So that we may know Him. So we have these guys that, uh, we have these guys that have been oppressive. We see Jesus and His righteous anger drive them out. And all of this has been portrayed earlier in that fig tree. Like the, the whole idea of, of the fig tree having leaves and of being present and of having all of this uh, fluff and, and circumstance, so to speak, and then not having any fruits. All of that is now portrayed in real life as Jesus drives the money makers and the livestock sellers out of the temple. As that day closes, they make their way back to Bethany. And can you imagine the conversation on the way home? Can you imagine the disciples on the way home? They're like, have you ever seen him that mad? Like maybe, maybe something's going on here? And they're, they're on their way back and they spend the night in Bethany. And it says that the next morning... In verse 20 it says, And the next morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. They see the fig tree withered away to its roots. This fig tree is not just kind of dead. This fig tree is really dead. It's not just that the leaves have dried up. It's not just that it's no longer got those, but they're looking at it, and there's something about, and I don't know enough about fig trees to know how you would know this, but there's something about this fig tree that they're like, that thing is really dead. It's dead all the way down to the roots. There is no coming back from this. And they are astonished. The disciples are surprised. We have Peter. He, Peter remembers what happened the day before, and he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This tree has died overnight. We have a, a red bud in our front yard. We've been trying to plant a tree there for I, since, I don't know, two years, I think. We got a red bud in our tree right now that if you drive by our house, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> it's dead. 
But it, it was not an immediate thing. It was a gradual thing. Like we tried watering it and I just you, we leave on vacation and we come back and all the rain stopped like overnight seemingly and it's just dead. But we understand that it, it, it was a process and we understand why it happened, that we didn't take care of it well enough and that I'm just blaming it that it was a weak tree and just, it was, but this, that's not what happened here. It was an overnight, 24 hours. They go in, Jesus curses it, they come back, they go back in the next morning and this thing is deader than a doornail. And Peter's just like, I don't know how that happens. He's, he's astonished. And Jesus answers him, have faith. Have faith. Now this tree takes on a different meaning. Jesus uses it at first to talk about hypocrisy of Israel and how Israel is losing its standing as the, the way and as, as the ambassadors of, of the one true God and how He is bringing curse upon them. And now, the next morning, he is talking, he is using the tree to talk about a lesson about faith and about faith in our lives. He says, Truly, I say to you, if you think, in essence, he's saying, if you're amazed by that, if you think that's incredible, he says, Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. More than likely, the mountain that he's talking is about Mount Olivet. That mountain that just in a few days that he would be on top of and praying urgently about the cross and what lays before him and he's arrested there that he's they're looking at this beautiful mount and he's saying you think a dead tree is impressive he's saying the impossible is possible with god if you think this is impressive you look at that mountain and you tell it to move and it'll move now he's using a bit of hyperbole he's he's speaking of something impossible being possible of the and really truly that's what the disciples are going to face moving forward think about what's just ahead for them a man dying and the impossible happening that he comes back to life you think about 12 guys and maybe a few dozen more having the gospel, having the true good news that He is risen and they change the world. And an, an impossible task. Jesus is telling them, you stick with Me. You know Me. And nothing is impossible. Nothing is involved. It's the same lesson that he teaches them with the rich young ruler. When this rich young ruler comes and he asks for how must I be, how, what, am I, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, go and sell everything you have. And the rich young man realizes that that's his idol. That's the thing that he trusts in and he can't possibly do that. And Jesus, in great compassion, turns to his disciples and says what? It is impossible for the rich to come to Christ. And the disciples are like, then how? Then if, that's, if it's impossible, then how can any of us? And Jesus says all things are possible through God. 
all things are possible. And this, that's the same reminder that he's giving them here. There are going to be things that lie, lie before you. There are going to be things that you encounter that when you come into the midst of the, the situation that you're going to be thinking, this is impossible. And he says, have faith. Have faith. Trust me. Trust me. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We need to pause here for just a moment because it's really easy for us to misconstrue this passage. There are many that would teach that, man, you ask for that new Corvette, you man, you just pray hard enough. Just pray hard enough. If you don't receive it, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you don't receive that material good, it's just because you don't have a faith. Never stopping to wonder that maybe it's not God's will that you don't that you have a Corvette. Corvette. Maybe never stopping to remember that God's not your genie in a bottle, that you rub it the right way and He's going to do whatever you want Him to do. We need to be careful that we don't view prayer in that manner, that we don't view faith in that manner, that it's not some magic potion, not some magic words that we give, and all of a sudden we have everything. We need to read this in the context that Jesus tells us, hey, life's going to be hard sometimes. People are going to hate you. You're going to get drugged before synagogues and rulers, and they're going to threaten your life. We need to remember that this context fits with the other context as well. So what is he talking about? When you begin to pray, when you begin to have communion with God, when you draw closer to Him, you cannot help but take on His will. You begin to know Him more. When you have placed your faith and your trust in God, He begins to change you. And He tells us that He puts in us a new heart. No longer is it a heart of stone, but now it's a heart of flesh that's able to comprehend and understand the things of God. And we begin to draw closer to Him. And now our prayers aren't simply just for physical blessing. They're not just simply for, oh God, I, I want this. Please give me this. But now it's, Lord, Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, your will be done. And our Father's response in those moments when we pray His will be done is gladly, my child. Gladly. You want my will to be done? Let's go. I've given a, a silly illustration before that, that so undershoots the bigness of what's happening here, but I, I, I want to share it again. It's kind of like, when I was a kid, like, if I was asking my dad to play a video game, I would have been laughed and scoffed at. Like, dad playing a video game is just kind of a silly notion all of itself. But by golly, if I were to ask my dad, hey, let's go fishing, all of a sudden it was gladly, son, when do you want to go? Where do you want to go? How much Mountain Dew do I need to buy to make that happen? In the, in the same way, but like to the nth degree, when we come to our Father and we pray for silly things that are outside of his will, sometimes he says no. Sometimes he, say, sometimes he says yes just because he's a good father and he chooses to bless us. Sometimes he says, I have a better plan, 
We were talking this week with the kids at children's camp, and we were talking about Daniel and how God they passed a law that Daniel was not to pray, that no one was to pray to anybody except for the king for 30 days, and they catch Daniel doing what? They catch Daniel praying and giving thanks to God and asking God to take him through it. I don't think that Daniel, when he prayed, was thinking, go through the lion's den. I'm pretty sure Daniel was probably praying, let's go around that somehow. I don't, and that doesn't mean he didn't trust God. I think Daniel trusted God more than we can ever imagine. But I'm pretty sure that if Daniel were to draw up the plan, through the lion's den would not be it. And yet God had some bigger thing. Some grander thing. Can you imagine Daniel, and, and again, this is a little bit of Holy Spirit imagination. I'm not saying this is what happened, and, and by golly, we, we stand on the text. But can you imagine Daniel in the lion's den, and he's like, this is not the plan. And an angel comes and shuts those mouths, and he's like, oh, that's way cooler. That's way cooler. We come and we pray before the Lord, understanding that sometimes His plan is better than our plan, but we also, as we communicate with Him more, as we learn His will more through His Word, as we spend more time with Him, what the amazing thing that happens is we begin to pray His will, and He says, gladly, my child, let's do it. It doesn't matter if the world looks at it and says that's impossible. It doesn't matter if the world says there's no way that that can happen. With Christ, all things are possible. So we come and we pray in faith. And here's the thing. He says faith, faith that does not doubt. Faith that does not doubt. When I come up to a chair, and this is the, the classic example, when I come up to a chair, there are very few times in my life that I think about sitting down in a chair before I do it. I don't walk up to the chair and go, oh, I wonder if that can hold me. Like I just sit down. I just do it. I don't think about it. I don't ponder it. I don't like inspect every chair that I come up to and think, oh yeah, that I just sit down. That's the same faith, the same trust that we're called to have in Jesus Christ. That we just do it. Like we have this relationship. We have experienced His love and His compassion before. We have spent time in His Word and we just do it. We, we just sit down in, his, in faith in that He knows what's going on and that He can handle it. It is a faith that does not doubt. Receive prayer. Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. One other thing, and again, this is not in your notes, but I want to just draw attention to it very quickly because we've talked about this several times before. But notice here, it says in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is, also, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus reminds us very quickly that if we are in His will and we are praying in faith, that we must also be reminded of the relationship not only with Christ, but we need to be reminded of the relationships that we have horizontally here on earth. He tells us time and again in the New Testament, if your prayers are being hindered, then start looking at your relationships. Is there unforgiveness? Is there bitterness? Take care of that. And it all goes back to what we were talking about earlier. 
that we are to be an appearance. We're to be a conduit of God's grace. We're to be have the appearance and then have the fruit of being Christians and disciple makers. And so if we're to look more like Christ, if we're to be that conduit, if we're to bear that fruit, if we're to help people to understand the forgiveness that God offers us, then by golly, we should be people that forgive well. If we are to be a people that talk about for the forgiveness of Christ, then we had better be a people that forgive well. When you stay in praying, forgive if anyone has anything among you. So what's our part here? What, how do we respond to this? What, what are some things that we should notice here? But one, I want to pull out of what he says in verse 17. He says, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? What is God's desire for us as believers? We are called to pray for all of the nations. This is why our faith is so important. This is why God says, you... you Ask me to do the impossible. And surely as we look around the world, there's a little bit of that in our hearts, right? We look around a nation that we live in, and maybe unlike any other time in our history, we are being torn apart by politics and by ideals and by ideologies. And we pray, Lord, bring revival to this place. Lord, open our hearts to this place. And it, but at times, there might be a part of you that's like, that seems impossible. Have faith. As I look, a friend of mine and I were talking. I, we hadn't seen each other a long time. He's from El Salvador. And we were talking about some of our journeys together there and about some of the other places we had visited. And uh, we, we try to keep track. Yeah, there's just something about going to that place that you want to, to check in on them. And as I look around and as I read the world news, I see... Starvation in Madagascar. I see persecution in Nigeria. I see political unrest in South Africa as they're burning the place down to the ground, it seems like. I see pandemic in Thailand. I see oppression in El Salvador. I think, Lord, come. Lord, come. We need You to do the impossible. Desperately. To do the impossible. To pour Your Spirit out onto the hearts of men and women in our world and for them to be saved. I stand and it's, it's what I do every time I, I come behind this pulpit as I pray that the Lord would do the impossible. That he would use the words of a foolish man to change hearts in a way that only he can. Lord, do the impossible. We're called to pray for the nations. But if we're going to do that, then we must ask the question, are we on mission or are we just playing around? Are we just playing a game? You have to ask yourself this morning as you read this text, we like to separate ourselves from these things. We like to separate ourselves away from the text. When it's good, when there's blessing, it's like, yeah, that's me. I'm going to claim that. 
When he talks about loving children, we love to rush in and say, we're the little kids that he loves on and hugs on, and surely that is true. But when it's a passage like this, and he's talking about fig trees that don't have fruit, and he's casting people out of the temple, it's like, man, those people were awful. But we better ask the question, are we on mission with him? Are we in his ambassadors of the gospel? Or are we just playing a game where we look like we're the real deal? We look like we're in season. We look like we have fruit. But when someone comes and inspects our lives, we're like, there's nothing there. Friend, if I, if I took away Sunday morning attendance, and I'm not saying I don't, I don't want you to go anywhere, but if I, took, if I took that away from your life, I said, you can't use this. Tell me how your life's different. Or if I were to go to your coworker, or the guy you drink coffee with in the morning, or the lady that cuts your hair, and I said, tell me how they are different, but you can't tell me they go to church. You have to use something else. What would they say? What would you say? Is your life truly different because of Christ? You allow Him to make decisions. You allow Him to lead. You allow Him to use what He's given you for the kingdom. Or are you just a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit? Are you one that goes to the temple, but rather than being someone that leads people towards the temple, you're, you're someone that, leads, that puts up every barrier possible for them not to go in? We have to ask ourselves that question. Talking to the kids this week, we talked about having a time of response. That when we hear the word of God, there should be an expectation in our lives that we respond. It's a conversation. The Lord speaks his word to us, and then we do something with that. And we were telling the, telling the, the campers that you have three options, really. One is to hear the word of God and to jump up in praise and in worship and to say, man, he is a God that has grace. Even in his anger, ang righteous anger, he has grace. And I am thankful for that. We stand and we give Him praise. The second thing that we can respond is sometimes we just fall to our knees. Father, I have been playing a game. I have the appearance of righteousness, the appearance of being yours, but there is nothing in my life that says that. I have been an obstacle rather than a conduit. Maybe sometimes we just need to pray, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I want to follow you. And sometimes we just have questions. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get done reading the Word of God and I need help to understand. I need help to process what the Lord's doing. And so that is the beauty of being a church and gathering together that sometimes in our response, we need to go. We need to go find another brother or sister in Christ and say, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I'm struggling with. Or here's what I'm excited about. Can you pray with me? Can you talk with me? doesn't have to be me. Go find another brother and sister here. I would love to. You can come grab me. I'm, I'm happy with that. But maybe there's someone here that, that you feel comfortable with. Then go to them. Ask those questions. 
But I pray that we would respond to the Word when He talks to us. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're going to have a time of response this morning. And I would encourage you, join us. Join us in the music. Join us in prayer. Or go find somebody that can talk, that you can pray with and talk to. But this morning I pray the last thing that we want to do is walk out of here and not do anything. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and Father, we, as we said earlier, Lord, it's easy for me to read this passage and think, man, those... Those Israelites, they just didn't get it. Man, those money exchangers and those livestock sellers, man, they were just horrible people. And it's easy for me to shake my head in disgust and to shake my head in ridicule and then to walk away from a passage like this and not allow it to speak to me. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that You would That You would do the act of grace that only You can do. That You would use Your Word to open our eyes to maybe some blind spots in our life. That You would use Your Word to open our eyes maybe this morning to how we have been an obstacle to grace rather than a conduit of grace. Lord, that we would beg Your forgiveness for that. Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning and they, they don't have a relationship with You, that they don't know what, it's, what it means to have a faith that can move mountains, to have a God that desires to, to have His hand on their life, that this morning that they would desire to follow You. Lord, that You would do, again, things only that You can do. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would respond this morning in Your will and in Your grace. We pray this in the the righteous name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning you can stand with us and sing about the greatness of our God, or you can stay at your seat and pray, or you can come find somebody that you need to talk to, but this morning you, you respond.